Hello, welcome to Desert Island Books, a podcast about reading. I'm your host and resident librarian, Natalie Mason, from the Melbourne Library Service. Joining me is one special guest who will share their top three all-time favourite books. Michael Williams is the director of the Wheeler Centre for Books, Writing and Ideas in Melbourne. He hosts and is a guest on programs on ABC Radio and TV. Michael has also worked as a breakfast presenter for Melbourne's Triple R, as a member of the Australia Council's Literature Board in publishing, and has written extensively for The Guardian, The Age, Sydney Morning Herald, The Australian, and pretty much everywhere else also as well. Welcome to your desert island, Michael. Hi, Natalie. How are you feeling? I'm feeling very good. I, when you hear your own bio read back to you, it's hard not to like do little edits when you hear it. Like you think, oh, what I say extensively is that churching it up a bit. Do I need to pull it back? It it is a very strange kind of seeing yourself reflected back. Still, I sound posh. You are posh, aren't fancy. you? Posh? No, I no, think no. you're fancy. No, no, I just get to be near fancy people a lot, and reflected glory is a good thing. <laughs> it sure is. It's good for the complexion. It's great. It's it's better than better than the sun on a desert island. <laughs> that sounds like truth. So, shall we begin delving through the bookshelf of things that you brought with you? Yes, although I'm a recalcitrant and bad student, but I'm ready. I've brought a bookshelf. <laughs> Excellent. Please reveal a title and author of book number one. For book number one, I have gone with Bel Canto by American author Anne Patchett. Uh, it's back from back in 2002, and it won the Orange Prize, as it was then, uh, which is now the Bailey's Prize for mm. women's writing in the UK. That's right. Uh, and the Penn Faulkner Award. So it was much celebrated. It's a work of literary fiction, but it is, uh, maybe inevitably for me, plot-driven and character-driven. It's an absolute page-turner. A romance I've seen it described as, although the plot doesn't sound terribly romantic. It is. I, I mean, look, the reason I picked this book, it is a favourite, although when you asked me for favourites, I came out in hives and just rocked in the fetal position <laughs> for like a good solid couple of weeks until I got my very polite prompting email that said, <laughs> you know, you never answered my question. I, I struggle with favourites, but anyone who knows me knows that when they see me, I'm always carrying a book. Hmm. I, when a close friend's grandfather died, a little while ago, uh, his whole family were a bit mortified because I showed up at the funeral with a book. Not because I thought the funeral would be boring, but who catches a train out to a suburb where they know they're going to be commuting for 20 minutes, 25 minutes, without the security blanket of their book with them? I bet you're the same. I am the same, although I always have an audio book on the go and a giant bag yeah. so I can conceal. Have you thought about a giant bag or uh, audio book? I've done the man bag from time to time, which is, <laughs> is purely a book concealer. So I'm often carrying a kind of some kind of tote bag or something that's embarrassingly stuffed with books in yeah. case I need my backup. It, it's not ideal, but it's very comforting for me. I live in fear of finding myself with five quiet minutes and not having a book on me when it happens. What is there to do in a oh, quiet moment imagine, if you're not Imagine reading? having to reflect on yourself and the decisions you've made. I would, that would be the most <laughs> awful thing in the world. I need a book as a buffer between me and the grim reality of myself. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. That's why we read. Correct. <laughs> the so, libraries are littered with people in denial of how awful they are. That's what it is. You can't agree with me. I know that, but I'm just going to defame them all. <laughs> <laughs> we love the people that use our libraries. Oh, we are those people. That's I'm not, exactly I, I'm right. not saying us and them. I'm just saying we're all monsters and we all use books to pretend that we might one day be okay. We're hiding quietly from ourselves. That's right. This 
whole idea, this whole movement of mindfulness and tuning into what's in your brain. It's a bad idea, oh. guys. Pick up a book. Yeah, that makes me feel sick. But my favourite kind of reading is always... Um, I am an absolute sucker for narrative. Like I just, what I want is a good story well told. Yep. So I want something that pulls me along. So I'm not, um, I, I'm i a snob about what I read, but I'm very eclectic about what I read. So I read um, some genre fiction, a lot of literary fiction, some YA stuff. Some Like it's a mix. But the thing I want is a good story that's going to drag me along with characters I care about. Mm. So the kind of literary fiction I like is more interested in that than it is with the beautifully well-crafted sentence. I love a well-crafted sentence, but actually, you know when it got kind of uh, popular to kind of point out that J.K. Rowling wasn't a great prose stylist? Mm. You know, she's, oh, no, her sentences are clunky or cliched or whatever. And all I could ever say in response is, don't be ridiculous. Who notices the sentence when you're in the story? That's right. And she has that ability in spades. And so if she can tell me a story and absolutely grip me and pull me along... Nothing makes me happier as a reader, especially a reader who works in the world of books, to find a book that my critical faculties can't work on. That's it. That I can't review, that I can't talk about, that I can't um, pair back to this worked and this didn't. All I can get, offer is the emotional response, which is I loved it. Yeah. And I find that really disarming, but I, it's my favourite feeling in the world is I don't have words, I just have the book and me and I want to convey that I liked it. It's surprising. And I think that's what I love most about reading is being surprised by something I didn't think I would like or being surprised by something that I thought I should like because everyone else around me liked that I didn't. Yeah, no, that's definitely a thing. The, the, the other part of it is when you read it and you love it and you know you'll recommend it. You know you'll give it as a gift to people. Yeah. And that, that's part of the reason I chose Bel Canto, hmm. um, even though it's not the most recent of the books that I had that connection with. It's not one of the first ones I had that connection with. But it is a book that I picked up at random or got given for Christmas or whatever. I can't remember exactly how. But upon finishing it, I had a profound sense of satisfaction and loss that it was gone mm. and a desire to share the experience of reading that book for the first time with people I cared about. And so I reckon that I would have bought that book now maybe... 2002, I reckon I would have bought it 40 times Truly. and given it to people. That That's how much. It's just one of those reliable ones where I'm thinking, oh, so-and-so, I don't really know their tastes. I want to buy them a book. I want it to be one that I know they're going to get pleasure from. It's a great one to give friends who have just gone through a breakup, for example, because it's quite romantic, hmm. but it's not kind of sad or it, it won't trigger too much personal kind of pain well, for them. Well, it's set in a sort of hostage crisis situation, which is the most romantic setting I well, can that's, imagine. I mean, it's classic. Most of us uh, meet true loves uh, in something akin to a hostage situation. Under gunpoint. Um, it's, yeah, well, it's, again, the people who use libraries know what we're talking about there. <laughs> Uh, I've got to stop being rude about library users. I love Nothing's them. rude about libraries. No, Just it's this weird like. convergence of things. So it's set in a Japanese embassy in Lima yep. where a world-famous soprano is going to give a concert. So it's a combination of um, Japanese diplomats and businessmen, uh, a bunch of uh, freedom fighters, and uh, a bunch of opera singers. So it's this weird convergence of things that don't really belong together. It has very heightened stakes, but in a weird kind of bubble sense. Um, and it just brings those worlds together in a way that is um, is fun as, as much as anything else. It's fun how and it's does, beautifully done. How does she weave magic out of that, that group? 
I that love really Anne Patchett. Group of pap- I think the opera maybe might be the thing that always makes me think, really? Yeah. How does she do that? Tell me how she does that. She Part of it is she writes really beautifully about the creative process mm. and by choosing an art form that's not her art, own art form, mm. I think it gives her a chance to do that with a bit of distance. I, the other example I would think of is um, the Siri Hustvet novel uh, about the painter, and I forget its name. Oh, yeah. that one It'll has a giant heartbreak in the middle of it. it what does. I loved. What it's I loved. What yeah, I loved. that's the one. And yeah. and that's what I loved. I would put in a similar category in some ways to Bel Canto, in that it's hmm. a piece of character and plot driven literary fiction that surprises you. You mm-hmm. go in thinking, I know what this story is, I know how it works. And you have no idea. And you have no idea. But the the parallel there is in what I loved, Hustvet writes about the visual arts world and mm. painting, and by bringing that to life, you get this kind of idea of what the writerly art form means to her. Yeah. And in a way, Patchett does a bit the same with opera singing um, mm. in, in Bel Canto. But the other thing is it's in some ways a novel about repression, which is a really great theme for a novel. Like mm. if you think about something like Remains of the Day, mm. if you have characters who... When um when Ian McEwan brought out his book Saturday, Nick Hornby wrote this brutal review of it. Truly. Where he said, um, as a novelist, it's a complete cop-out to make all your characters brain surgeons and poets who are perfectly emotionally articulate. Right. If they can say what they feel at all points, you as a novelist are not doing enough heavy lifting. <laughs> um, which I always remember because I think, I think it's true and I think it's a particularly sorry, brutal takedown. Yeah, sorry. Big listener to the pod, I'm sure, as well. <laughs> He's one of uh, our biggest fans. I, I have no doubt. Well, Ian, um, your past four books have been atrocious and you're a legend, but you need to get your game back. Uh, that's just we'll a little shout-out. We'll make that out. The, um, the, the sting for yeah. the podcast. Yeah, just random takedowns. That's, that's the best way to do it. But no, all the characters, whether they're in business or diplomacy, whether they're people fighting for liberation of their country or they're opera singers on tour, doing jobs for hire, Mm. they're all buttoned down in different ways. They're all having Mm. to hold on to the things that they feel, the ideas of who they are as human beings. And so that obviously is the perfect foundation for any kind of romantic story Mm. because you have characters who can't express themselves, put in a situation outside their comfort zones and suddenly forced to find a way to articulate uh, identity and, and hopes and dreams. You've convinced me. Yeah. No, I, I don't think you'll be sorry. Like, I really, I, having said I've, I reckon I've bought it 40 times for people, um, I can't think of anyone who's come back and said, yeah, I didn't get it. Hmm. I mean, there are other books that I probably feel more strongly about or, I, I mean, definitely, but this this is one that fits that perfect thing of what it is to be a reader who yeah. likes likes nothing more than a new novel that they're excited by picking up, mm. is it's just this kind of pure storytelling exercise. And mm. that makes me happy. Yeah. Makes me happy too. Michael, mm. could you please reveal the title and author of book two? So I cheated when you, when you asked you me for favourites. Well, no, I did a bit <laughs> because I um like there's a scene in the office where David Brent's asked his favourite. He says he likes classical music and he's asked his favourite and he says Beethoven. I think people pretty much agree he's the best. And he's asked, oh, so is there a particular piece you like? And he said, oh, the best of album. Um, <laughs> and it's just one of those delightful. Well, of course, it's by definition the best of. You've you've chosen very well. When you asked me to pick three, 
I felt like I would, the best thing I could do is pick three different types of books mm. um, that give away a bit of what kind of reader I am. If I was taking three books onto a desert island, they would all be literary fiction. I mean, or maybe one big crime novel or something, but yeah. they would all be plot-driven fiction. That's what I would want to read. That's what I would want comfort from on the desert island. But I've chosen a book of poetry for my second choice, and that is um, a cheat because I'm not a reader of poetry and I'm not a good reader of poetry. But it's a poet who I really love, a guy called Billy Collins, who was the US Poet Laureate. Uh, and I've chosen a collected works anthology called Sailing Alone Around the World, uh, uh, Around the Room, um, which is a, a beautiful collection of uh, poetry across several decades of his mm. career. And I chose it because um, Collins is a poet who I consistently love the work of when I come across it. Um, and poetry for me is this stealth thing that surprises me, where um, it, in some ways it taps into an even purer love of reading for me when it connects, mm. um, because it is about a felicitous sentence or a moment or a, a single image. A, an example of that in prose is that one of Billy Collins' collections is called Picnic, Lightning, mm. which comes from Lolita. And right, there's a yes. scene where uh, Humbert Humbert is talking about uh, the death of his mother and he says, my very photogenic mother died in a freak accident. And then there's an open bracket. It says picnic, comma, lightning, close bracket. And that's it. And that's a, like, for me, that's a beautiful sentence. Like, you stop when you're reading it and it takes your breath away because of how much is done there just with punctuation so and the words. words. And the, yeah. you know, like, that gives me a little shiver down my spine yeah. that writing can just, odd juxtapositions, pauses, forcing you to read it a particular way. Um, is like one of the most beautiful experiences as a reader. And Collins picking that out as a name of an anthology uh, is indicative of the kind of poet he is. He mm. loves that kind of play and he loves to bring unlikely things together and have them bump up. And I'm sure all great poets do it. And anyone mm. I know who's a lover of poetry and reads lots of it, that's one of the things that they read it for. Um, but for me, uh, there are a couple of moments in Billy Collins' poems where that's the revelation. That's the thing that I get out of them. Something huge happens with so few words. It's an it's an economy. So it's probably a you know a very clever device, but it doesn't feel like that. You don't. I don't notice that he's being particularly clever with his language. I just notice the wit, and the um, you know to call him observational is almost an insult. I think he feels. Um, profoundly about the things that he's describing, even though they're sort of everyday, ordinary things. There is a huge amount of, um, there's there's humour and compassion, but also just a, a profound sense of the of the ordinary. Yeah, it, it's, I, I think you're right. It is um, that capacity to render the everyday beautiful. Mm. Uh, but also with him, wit and humour is a big part of it. He, mm -hmm. um, some of it, the names of his poems are funny. There's one called Another Reason I Don't Keep a Gun in the House and the opening sentence is uh, the dog next door is barking again. And that's, you know, the, the the interplay. He has one that's called Reading an Anthology of Chinese Poems of the Sung Dynasty, I Pause to Admire the Length and Clarity of Their Titles. <laughs> which, is, which is lovely. But then the poem itself, 
It seems these poets have nothing up their ample sleeves. They turn over so many cards so early, telling us before the first line whether it is wet or dry, night or day, the season the man is standing in, even how much he's had to drink. Maybe it's autumn and he's looking at a sparrow. Maybe it's snowing on a town with a beautiful name. Viewing peonies at the Temple of Good Fortune on a cloudy afternoon is one of Sun Tung Po's. Dipping water from the river and simmering tea is another one, or just on a boat, awake at night. And Lu Yu takes the simple rice cake with, In a boat on a summer evening, I heard the cry of a water bird. It was very sad and seemed to be saying, My woman is cruel. Moved, I wrote this poem. There is no iron turnstile to push against here, as with headings like Vortex on a String, The Horn of Neurosis, or whatever. No confusingly inscribed welcome mat to puzzle over. Instead, I walk out on a summer morning to the sound of birds and a waterfall, is a beaded curtain brushing over my shoulders. And ten days of spring rain have kept me indoors, is a servant who shows me into the room, where a poet with a thin beard is sitting on a mat with a jug of wine, whispering something about clouds and cold wind, about sickness and the loss of friends. How easy he has made it for me to enter here, to sit down in a corner, cross my legs like his, and listen. Michael, could you just read more poems? I, like I said, I don't, I don't read much poetry. Like I, I'm not a reader of poetry, but you read that, it so beautifully, though. That I love because, um, because the idea of it's funny, but actually, mm. at its heart, as with so many of Collins's poems, it's about what it is to be a reader. Like it's this mm. supreme act of empathy that says, you know, when he talks about. Uh, no turnstile to resist you on the way in. That's how I feel about most poems. You mm. know, I feel like there's a test I have to pass or I'm pushing through a thing or I'm being uh, held down and instructed in something. And the idea of kind of empathetically having writer and reader be part of the same exercise is is really lovely. And mm. I, I love great literature, but the concept of great literature often feels like this exclusive club. Well, it is, isn't um, it? Well, it's this dangerous thing because it, it comes from a place of privilege. It needn't. I mean, one of the reasons Australia is one of the highest per capita reading populations in the world is because as an art form, literature and reading uh, is incredibly open. People can come in at it from whatever direction works for them. It doesn't matter if it's Fifty Shades of Grey, although, of course, that does matter and you're a war criminal and don't read it. Oh, hush um, now. That book is utterly entertaining. Uh, well, that's good. I think any Twilight fan fiction doesn't deserve to get that kind of <laughs> success, but th that's just well, me. Well, I'm not talking about deserved success, but I think... You know, the best, I've read this quote a million times, the best book in the world is the one that you like the best. Absolutely. It has nothing to do with who else likes it, how many copies were sold. Reading is such a solitary experience and it's such a creative experience. Your mind goes wild. But it's, it's also, it's both those things, but it's also a communal experience in a funny kind of way. You can find mm. your people and your tribe. Well, this is why we by, talk about reading. Yeah. It's and, so and it's, I mean, I undermine my own point by taking a cheap shot, which is, Absolutely, my mo. <laughs> Sorry, no, 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 no. You, you are a hundred percent right to pull me up on it because the the point I was making was the exact opposite of the one I just demonstrated, which is, who cares? Like, great literature might feel like an imposing fortress, but actually, reading doesn't, and people find their way in in a million ways, yeah. and that's great. And one of the things, one of the reasons I wanted to put Billy Collins in the list today is because when I read poetry, I'm reminded of that most formative. Thing for all readers, which is being read to by your parents and reading stuff yourself. And so whether yep. it's de depending on what era you grew up as a kid, 
Um, I'll use Memfox for both examples. Whether you're possum magic, you know, a little possum looking for a Vegemite sandwich or whether you're wondering where the green sheep is, mm -hmm. that thing of finding the rhythm of words and the magic of words and that transporting you. Like I can still, and not just because I've had kids of my own, I can still recite all of Harry McClary without, um, without hesitation because it's there kind of embedded in me. Um, and the rhythm of it is really exciting. Mm. And it's nice as an adult to hear Mem Fox speak and hear her say, well, one of the things about Where is the Green Sheep is that, um, spoiler alert, it's it's behind a hedge fast asleep. But the more significant thing about it being there is the word asleep is the first multi-syllable word in that book. The rest of the book is single syllable for the rhythm of it all the way through. And the adjectives that they choose for describing each of the sheep are all single syllable because it wants that rhythm for kids to go boom, boom, boom. And only in a sleep at the end do you get that little one, two release. Now that is music. It's not even just poetry. That is cadence and rhythm and working out how to make a story hit you in the solar plexus mm. um, because you love words. And whether you know that it's a well-intended literary device and a, and a planned one or whether it's something that just happens in the in the you know in the rhythm of you reading that book aloud yeah what a marvel a thing. isn't it it's a one of my dorkiest um i'm just gonna brag now this do is it, my do bragging it, do moment. It. one of my dorkiest moments i don't necessarily have a bucket list and I avoid getting starstruck but uh, I we had Mem and Judy as guests of the Wheeler Centre at one point and I uh, had a chance to chat to Mem and I said what happened to your book Goodnight Sleep Tight? We had it when I was a kid actually in particular when my little sisters were small and I remember it really fondly and it's out of print. I can't get it anymore. And she said, oh, I'm so sad about that. That's one that fell out of print and I loved it too. And we were going back and forth talking about it. And I recited some of it based on how my mum read it to me. And the voice for Skinny Doug, the babysitter, was the mem echoed it with me and it was the same voice. And mum had taken us to see a reading, heard mem read it, and then read it to us as kids in the same voice. And it was one of those rolling things where you... And when I read that book to my kids, I would use the same voice. Some other time, said Skinny Doug, but I'll tell you another I learned from my mother. And we had this lovely moment of Mem as the author being surprised and touched that someone was remembering this book, me being delighted that this dreamlike memory from my childhood was being vindicated. Um, and then about six months later, the book got reissued with new illustrations from Judy Horacek, dedicated to me you for the new that. edition. You so I was, I was pretty happy. Of all the, all the moments in my career of oh, working wow. in books, having, uh, having a dedication from Mem Fox in that book. Um, and she sent it to me uh, with a note in it for my kids and I read it to them lots and they loved it. But when my uh, youngest kid was kind of only just starting to talk, one night he kept asking for a book called Michael and the Fox and I didn't know what Michael and the Fox was. Um, and eventually he went and got it and he didn't want the book. He wanted the card that Mem Fox had written me that had been in the front of the thing and he thought that was a story called Michael and the Fox. So well, it, it is in some It way. is a story called Michael and the Fox. Smart so, kid. Well, you know, borderline. But oh. he has his moments. <laughs> Gosh, I could talk to you about books all day. Let's let's keep I'm sorry, doing that. Nerdy. No, don't apologise. Birds of a feather. Um, could you please reveal the title and author of book three? Again, a bit of a cheat, a bit of Beethoven's greatest hits going on here, but I felt um, I'd touched on my love of literary fiction and 
um, the way poetry opens up beautiful sentences for me. So I thought I would go with a local legend and classic for my third choice. And I've gone with Helen Garner's True Stories, which is the um, the recent republication of her collected non-fiction uh, that uh, local publisher Text Publishing brought that out with um, Helen Garner's Stories, which is her collected uh, fiction as mm -hmm. well. So they brought out the two books in very handsome editions uh, very late handy. last year. One has a red cover and one has a blue cover. They That's are, how we tell the They difference. are gorgeous. They make for a very good gift. Yeah. Uh, that's not product placement for me. That's just a <laughs> confession of something I've done a few times. Yeah, it's a reader's confession. Um, and I chose that because the power of good nonfiction and a good essay mm. is a completely different beast to... Uh, what you get out of a great story or um, a beautiful poem. Mm. And Garner is one of the best. She is clear-eyed. She is mm. um, manages to be very warm, I think. It's not a word that's often associated with her because she uh, lots of her essays are very spiky and very kind of direct and she doesn't suffer fools gladly well, and everything not, else. Yeah, not everyone's kind about her writing, which I bristle at because I love her. I, I um, do too. I mean, I, I love her I should say I love books. her writing. I've never met her and I wouldn't follow her down the street if I saw her. Maybe I would. Probably uh, wouldn't. No, of course I wouldn't. Um, but I do love... You definitely could. I could maybe, no, probably wouldn't. Um, I love her writing. But, uh, you know, she's often criticised for being too standoffish, too arm's distance um, and not putting, you know, herself in the story. She does so much of that kind of journalistic writing where she examines a true crime, for example. Mm. That's something she does quite well. Um and because she doesn't take a side and because she doesn't get awfully emotional about it, um, she's often kind of criticised for that. But I feel like that's what I love most about her. What do I, you think? I, the reason I wanted to say warm and warmth is part of mm. how I think about how she writes is I think she's incredibly humane. And I think, funnily enough, she gets both criticisms about being too arm's length from some stories and too present in others. So mm. her um, famous book about uh, a sexual harassment case at the University of Melbourne uh, called The First Stone, yeah. um, a lot of people had issues with how present Helen was in that and um, how much her own personal kind of politics and views of what appropriate behaviour for a victim of sexual harassment was uh, coloured her ability to tell the story in a way that was interesting. But the reason I say warm is I think the accusation of being chilly um, is one that's levelled at smart acerbic women all the time and I don't I, I think it's intensely gendered and I don't think it's right mm -hmm. I, I um <laughs> I, I think that uh, yep. I think that a, a dispassionate journalistic energy um, is seen as a strength in a male writer and then there's something about it as a sphere for women that uh, there's an easy kind of complacent chauvinistic response to it that says somehow this is oh it's very cold or it's very aloof or and I just don't think we apply those words uh, equally. We don't. We have an expectation that women will be maternal and protective and compassionate and, you know, all those other... Whereas I think I think Ghana lets the power of uh, an emotional register and a deep sense of empathy be what makes her non-fiction as good as it is. She'll expose herself when she needs to. Yep. Uh, she will let herself be angry or distressed um, or indifferent or behave badly. There's no sense that she bolsters this version of herself or her best self for, for print. For print. Yeah. It's like she will she will just say it how it is, and it, it's incredibly powerful. Of her novels, my favourite is probably The Children's Bark, mm. um, which uh, Monkey Grip is better remembered and better known, but Children's Bark, I think, is 
beautiful and magnificent. I think Joe Chinkway's Consolation is great. I think um, this house of grief uh, is Gosh. incredibly powerful. My only hesitation about this house of grief, and it's not necessarily a criticism of that book, but in the end, that book is very pared back. It follows the um, Farquharson case of the guy who drowned his own kids in the dam and follows the court case. And Helen sat in that courtroom month in, month out. And then there was, I think, a no trial. And then she sat through the next one again. Yeah, there were two again. trials. And, you know, just absolutely devastating. And she's paired that book right back to being a trial account and really gotten rid of any um, materials around the outside. And you'll see in true stories, there are some essays that are about parallel things, criminal justice, about violence against women, about... And there's a there's a kind of added power to what was going on in the world and how Helen was writing about it um, at that time, and the book's not that. Mm. Like, the book is one thing, and it's the court case, and it does it incredibly well. Um, but one of the reasons true story, I think, is um, such a, a punch in the guts is that again and again you see a city, a world... A set of ideas that are very familiar, but when brought to life through Helen Garner's pen, uh, they are rendered horrifying and clear in a way that they're not when you're muddling through them. And she's something special. Yeah, she really is. And that book is 50 years worth of her non-fiction writing. Um, did, did you read it cover to cover? I I did. I'd read a lot of it before. It's the kind of thing you um, can dip in and out of. And it is books that some, some parts, Portions of that have been published previously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it um, most of it has been published previously right, in all okay. different places, and there are kind of pen portraits and things that work their way into um, into different books and things. But for example, her essay about Rosie Batty mm -hmm. um, oh, as gosh. as a kind of complement to the Farquharson book to this mm. House of Grief. That's a bit what I mean. Is there are those moments where. Um, this book gives you an idea of Helen in the world and the things that frighten her and appall her. Mm. Um, but it also gives moments of, of kind of um, kind of scrapbooks of domestic moments or um, moments shopping or a moment, you know, like it's not all big social policy stuff. Um, reading There's a story it, about a table, if I remember correctly. Yeah, there is. That uh, originally appeared in Everywhere I Look. Yeah, no. A kitchen table. It's it, just... <laughs> It's a it's the Billy Collins of nonfiction, isn't it? Where the ordinary becomes utterly extraordinary in the hands of someone who can write, yeah, no, majestically. It it is exactly that. It's just the person who can take something small, um, and and just yeah, render it real mm. and beautiful. And that's um, that's Ghana for me. And so I will always read um, anything she writes on any topic. Yeah, I feel the same way. Um, so that was why I wanted to pick that as the third. Hmm. Gosh, let's keep talking about reading. This is too much fun. Yeah, tell uh, me very happily. Uh, tell me what you're reading at the moment. Um, so I, I have probably the best job in the world. I think I'm very lucky running the Wheeler Centre. I'm surrounded by brilliant people who are very good at their jobs. They are all keen readers, and they are all. We do a thing at the end of the year where I'm, it's the one bit of being the boss of something. I'm very uneasy being in charge of something. Uh, but one of my cheeseball tendencies is I like at the Christmas lunch to go around the table and have everyone say, 
Um, you know, what was your wheeler center highlight of the year? And then what was your other cultural highlight of the year? And it always just, I go into the Christmas break, just absolutely loaded with these books or plays mm -hmm. or bits of music or whatever that my hyper literate, hyper brilliant team all engage with. And that's lovely. And I, I kind of soak it up. But one of the reasons it's the best job in the world is work reading and personal reading aren't vastly different. Mm -hmm. Like people say to me, oh, you must have to read lots for work. And I say, yes, but it's plot-driven, character-driven literary fiction <laughs> with characters I love and <laughs> ideas at the heart of it that I think would connect with other... Like, that's the yeah. thing, is that the Wheeler Center's mission is to find ways to connect people through books, writing, and ideas. And so for work, my reading is discovery, it's indulgence, it's curiosity, it's all the things that uh, a treat at the best of times. Mm. So um, it does mean the one thing that makes me slightly sad about the amount I have to read for work and what it does to my reading is I don't read heaps of... Um, I go through periods where I like to go back over the classics or whatever. I don't read heaps by dead writers now because mm. there's not much point. Can't get a dead writer to tour. We could talk yeah. about that's true. I can look. I can justify mm. it a bit, but they probably don't sit at the top of the list. Yeah. Well, ever. they're not sitting on a panel anytime soon for you. I see. No. That. I mean, I would like to hold a dead writers festival, and I think that would be lots of fun. That would be um, incredible. I know. I don't. My problem is the whole idea is in that name, and I haven't worked out the rest of it yet. But that's oh. a. Well, if you need a librarian yeah, to brainstorm yeah. with, I know one. A dead writers festival. It sounds slightly menacing, which is probably a bad thing. Oh, we could do it in the library. We're full of dead writers. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. It is true. I, th that's one of my bad habits at work is I like, I often will come up with ideas that are the name and then try and work backwards from there. <laughs> not, not the way to raise anything at all. Well, the um, idea's got to start somewhere. But I am lucky enough to be going over to Adelaide uh, Writers Week, which begins oh, yes. in a week. What so a remarkable lineup they have. They have year. a great lineup. It's a wonderful festival. It's the last festival of uh, the their director, Laura Crouch, who's done a wonderful job for that city and that festival. She's very, very good writers festival director. So mm. it's uh, sad that she's finishing up, uh, but she's put together an incredible roll call of writers from Sarah Santils to uh, Teju Cole to um, Camilla Shamsi, who I'm very excited about. Uh, so we partner on sharing some of those guests and bringing them to Melbourne when they're in Adelaide. Um, and I go across and do some interviews for them. Nice. So it means that I've got a lot of reading to prepare for those interviews, um, but again, not a great burden. So I've been introduced to the um, the British novelist Lawrence Osborne, who I hadn't read at all before, but his books, he writes um, a bit of memoir and travelogue stuff, but his novels are kind of best described as a cross between a kind of Patricia Highsmith and Graham Greene, which um, nice. is a particularly nice... Yeah, no, that's, that's, uh, that's definitely kind of... They tend to concern English people who are ignorant of their privilege going to other places in the world behaving badly and getting their comeuppance, which if that, like <laughs> that description actually hits a really sweet spot for me. Um, and there's something very satisfying about those books, but they're, mm. they're kind of smart and dark. And uh, the one I'm reading at the moment is called Beautiful Animals, which is about a young American woman and a young British woman who, uh, uh, well, I'll read you the blurb, which will give you the exact taste. Tell me. Uh, they're on the Greek island of Hydra. 
their relationship quickly takes on a special intensity. Amid the sun, sea, and high society of island life, their imaginations are sparked when one day they find a young Arab man, Faud, washed up on the shore, a casualty of the crisis raging across the Aegean. When their seemingly simple plan to help the stranger goes wrong, all must face the horrific consequences they have set in motion. Who doesn't like horrific consequences set in motion? Like that's my that's my best version of my week right there. <laughs> It's a good thing to read through. Yeah. I wouldn't want to live through it, oh. but I'd read I'd read all the way through that. So what are you up to today, Natalie? Well, I've just set some horrific consequences in motion. Actually, that's not too far from a And I got day. myself a coffee. <laughs> like that, that sounds uplifting. That's why we want it on the page. It frees us up from admitting our own horrific consequences. <laughs> and and we're in our in our end is our beginning. That is true. The dancers <laughs> are under the hill. <laughs> Michael, it's been an absolute delight it's having so you on nice the show. It's so nice to see you. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us. You can read this episode's show notes, including a list of all the books we've discussed on the Goodreads page, which you can find a link to at the Melbourne Library Service website. That's www.melbournelibraryservice.com.au. Look for the Read page. I'd also love to hear about what you would be taking to your desert island. Why don't you tweet me? Tweet at melblibrary with the hashtag Desert Island Books. Don't forget you can subscribe and download Desert Island Books podcast episodes at iTunes by searching for Melbourne Library Service. And while you're there, you can leave a review it's a really nice thing to do if you're feeling nice in your heart and it'll help other people find copies and episodes and happy reading